Together in the scriptures of the Old Testament, reading from Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9, and if you're using the church Bible, you will find it on page 493, Nehemiah chapter 9, and we read from verse 7. And here now the Levites are leading the people uh, in confession. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies because of your great compassion You did not abandon them in the desert. By day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. 
Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. And then from verse 22 to verse 31, um, the Levites continue to reflect on the Lord's dealings and goodness to Israel over a period of a thousand years. And then we want to read verse 32, which comes right up to date in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant in love, or of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers, so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Amen. Well, we don't have any small children with us this morning, so we'll um, move over our Passover, our children's address. We'll go next to our tithes, and let's worship the Lord as we present ourselves with our tithes to him in his service. We read now from the scriptures of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, page 1151 uh, in uh, the church Bible. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, uh, writing into a situation where there are many different issues in the church there. Uh, dips back into the Old Testament church and draws some examples from her history uh, and says her history was written for our learning and our benefit. And so with that in mind, we read this section, having read this um, or already read part of Nehemiah chapter 9, a lengthy historical Section. First Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud 
and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan reverie. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Amen. Lord God, we worship you this morning for the assurance of your love that does not fail. Your love for your people that overcomes our sins, that pardons them. Your love that overcomes the difficulties that beset us the circumstances that surround us as we live in a fallen world. Lord God, we thank you that even when we are faced with enemies, your love is sure and steadfast. And we praise you that you are able by your grace and by your might and power to work all things together for good to those who love you and are the called by your purpose. We thank you that the Apostle Paul expands this great theme in Romans chapter 8 when he says, Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And then sets forth a whole series of Practical circumstances that your people in Rome were faced with of old. And in any and every one of those, the love of God and Christ would triumph in the experience of your people. We praise you for that great truth. And Lord, we ask this morning for our lives. We uh, come before you in our need You know our circumstances. 
You know the challenges that each day brings. You know the opposition that there is in the world around us today to you and your gospel and your people. You know the sins that are within us as individuals and as a congregation and that hold us back and beset us. And Lord, in the light of all these things, we seek you. We seek your grace and your mercy in Christ. Forgive our many sins. Enable us to die to sin and to live to righteousness more and more. To put to death the misdeeds of the body. Help us, Lord, to love you more. For we are to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Help us to love our neighbor more. To love our neighbor as ourselves. To want only good and blessing for them. To do only good to them. Lord, help us to love our enemies as Christ loved his enemies. And as we were thinking last Lord's Day evening, enable us to engage with our enemies as they um, find fault with how we live, with what we uh, stand for. Help us, Lord, to be able to take the opportunities and by love to engage with them, seeking and desiring that they would come to see their foolishness and their sinfulness and repent and be saved. We pray this morning for Christians who are facing particular difficulties. We think again of Daniel and Amy MacArthur and their family business, the Asher's Bakery, and all that they have endured uh, in legal battle because they refuse to do what is against your word and their conscience. Lord, we pray for them in the ongoing situation. We pray for the Christian Institute and lawyers that seek to give them advice. We pray for the Attorney General for Northern Ireland, John Larkin, as he seeks to ensure that Law is not used wrongly against individuals uh, who have conscience about matters. And we ask, Lord God, that you would overrule in all of these things. We pray that they might be granted leave to appeal to the Supreme Court. We pray that that body of Supreme Court judges would indeed uphold the liberty of conscience uh, which uh, is so precious to believers and also that liberty of conscience uh, which is appreciated by non-believers. Lord, keep us from a state that would force people to do its thing against you, against your word, against what they believe is decent and right. Lord, we ask that you would be with other believers in other parts of the world that we only know of in, um, in faint ways, but who are passing through the fires 
and through the waters. And we ask, Lord, that you would uphold them. And we ask, Lord, that you would enable them to know that when they pass through the waters, you are with them and the waters will not engulf them. Father, we pray this morning for the weak and elderly that belong to our families. And we ask, Lord, that you would minister grace and help to them. We pray, Lord, for the progress and the hope of the gospel in their lives. We pray also for those connected with our congregation and part of our wider fellowship who are confined to their homes or to care. We think of Vera Blair and Lennis Wingfield and Anne Cameron. And we pray for these three dear women in the eventide of their lives and knowing the physical weakness of the body and in some cases of the mind also, needing huge amounts of personal care. Lord, be with these women and we pray that they might know the peace of God keeping their hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Sustain those who care for them uh, wherever they are located and give grace according to need. And Lord, we ask for those who are caring for the sick and seeking to bring them back to health and strength. And we ask that you would bless those efforts as well. Those who have passed through surgery recently or who are facing surgery in the near future. We pray for Isaac, the um, student at the college who has had to interrupt his studies because of this major illness. Draw near to him and his wife and family, and minister to them, and enable them to know that you are over all things. And what is more, you are with them in all things, and you will sustain them through all things. For such is the love of God for his people in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, please turn in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 8. And 9 and 10 were largely this morning in chapter 9. Uh, You'll find the uh, relevant sections on page 492 to 496 if you're using the Bible supplied by the church. Here in these weeks, we are learning how the people of God are built together in the 5th century before Christ. And this happens uh, during uh, the uh, life of Ezra and Nehemiah, and in particular after the rebuilding of the walls under the leadership of Nehemiah. And in these three chapters, Nehemiah 8, 9 and 10, The church hears the word of the Lord in a new way. And they understand the relevance and the application of that word to their lives uh, as they have not done in recent years. 
It's not a mere formal hearing. It is a heart-changing experience for them. And all of this takes place during the seventh month in their year. And as we'll see next week, the seventh month was a very important year in the religious calendar. But also in the national calendar, the seventh month actually was the first month. So it was their new year uh, from a national point of view. So there is and there are these gatherings of the people of God. And all kinds of people attend and are affected. Adults and children, male and female, leaders and citizens, rich and poor. And a mighty work of spiritual renewal, a mighty work of God takes hold among them, changing them from their hearts outwards. And this renewal manifests itself in the worship of God, as we saw last time. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6, and Nehemiah 9, chapter, sorry, chapter 9, and verse 3. There is a word produced worship among them. And we thought something more about that on Wednesday evening, what that means for us. And for them and for us, it means, first of all, a bowing down of ourselves in the dust, in the light of our sinfulness. And then it means a lifting up of God to the heights in his holiness and for his holiness. And this morning we have a further single point to make and to grasp as we think about building the people together. And now it is they're built together through word-produced confession of their sins. Word-produced Confession of their sins or repentance. But the word that's used here is confession. Let's see. Let's first of all go back to Nehemiah 1 and see how this is where Nehemiah began. 52 days or more uh, earlier when he heard of the trouble that Jerusalem was in. He began to pray, and Nehemiah 1.6, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. And confess the sins that we have sinned against you both my father's house and I have sinned now move forward to Nehemiah uh, chapter 9 and verse 2 then those of Israelite seed um, separated themselves from all foreigners 
and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. It's the same verb. And it occurs again in the next verse. Then those, sorry, verse 3, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one fourth of the day and another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Building the people together. And this confession of sin is the product of hearing and understanding the word of God. And examining their lives in the light of it. And being convicted by the Holy Spirit of how they fall short of God and his standard. Some of us have poor eyesight. Either we do not see things far off or we can't see things close up. The difference a pair of glasses makes. Put them on and everything becomes instantly clear and visible. And here Israel's vision of the Lord and of herself is corrected. It has been out of focus. It has been distorted. It has been unclear. But now it's corrected through the word. And like a pair of glasses. To natural sight. The word of God. Corrects our impaired vision of God. And our distorted vision of ourselves. And that leads then to confession of sin. Now this confession of sin is evident as Israel gathers on the first day of the month. We're back in chapter 8 verse 9. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Began then. And it reaches its highest expression now on the 24th day of the month. Nehemiah 9. When they meet in public assembly. Verse 2. They stood and confessed their sins. And again verse 3 as we saw for another fourth of the day they confessed. This spirit of confession of sin like a flood caused by ongoing rain, becomes wider and deeper as the month goes on. Begins in the first day, and it develops, it widens, it deepens, until it reaches this high point, um, almost high tide, in chapter 9, verses 7 to 37. And here now, in this section, they review their conduct, or they examine their conduct as the Lord's people. And the Levites lead them to do that. 
as they confess their sins. They say, let's look back. Let's see how we've lived. Let's see how we have responded to the Lord. How we've served the Lord. How we've failed the Lord. And they look back, not over their lifetime. Not over the past few weeks or months. Not over the 90 years since their return from Babylon. No, they look back 1,500 years of history. That's what's covered. From verse 7 through to verse 31. 1,500 years of history. And they note as they review their conduct. uh, And here's the broad um, development. The broad bands, if you want to put it like that, uh, that they look at. Verses 7 to 12. How the Lord saved their father Abraham. When he lived in Ur. And worshipped false gods. And how the Lord saved them when they lived in Egypt. And I think there's every evidence to suggest that by that time they were also worshipping the Egyptian gods. So in the review of the past, they see how God intervened, the Lord intervened to save them. And then verses 13 to 21 Uh, In their review, they note how the Lord sustained them. He didn't just save them out of Egypt. He brought them into the wilderness and he sustained them body and soul. Food, manna for the body. The word and his statutes and his commandments for the soul. And he did that over their 40 years wandering in the wilderness. So they review and they see how the Lord saved them. How the Lord sustained them. And then verses 22 to 25, they they develop to the next era, which is the era when the Lord settled them. He settled them in the land of Canaan. A land of, a place of milk and honey. That's language to say a place of plenty. A place of abundance. And they had cities that they did not build. And the ground was well suited to crops. And there was raw materials, minerals there to to manufacture with. And then finally from verse 25 to 31. The theme is that they note as they review their past is the Lord scourged them. That's a good old King James word. Hebrews chapter 12 But it means he disciplined them. He chastised them. And I used it because I wanted you to have the four S's. Saved by the Lord from their sin and from Egypt. Sustained by the Lord in the wilderness. Settled by the Lord in the place of plenty. But then scourged by the Lord because of their sins. The Lord Delivering them repeatedly and that verb deliver, that verb give occurs again and again. Delivering them repeatedly to their enemies. 
And the reality is, is that not how the Lord deals with us? Has he not saved you out of your sin? Has he not sustained you in this world which is like a wilderness for Christians? Where it's barren, you don't get any encouragement from the world, but you're sustained body and soul. And has the Lord not also settled you, not in an earthly place, for that's only temporary where you dwell now, but he's settled you in his church, he's settled you in the city which is heaven itself. He's given you an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, reserved in heaven for you, as Peter puts it. But is it not also the case that the Lord scourges us? Hebrews 12. He disciplines the sons he loves. And the reality is, if we are honest, and if we take off our rose-tinted spectacles for a little while, I and you, we together, we are not any better than Israel. We turn away from him after different things and different ideas and after our own ideas and after the world's ideas and the Lord has to scourge us in order to bring us back. And so there's a breadth here to this confession of sin. 1,500 years, the Lord saved us, the Lord sustained us, the Lord settled us, but the Lord also had to scourge us because of our sins against him. But then notice there's not only a breadth to their confession, there's a depth to their confession of sin. There's a depth. This is no general sort of, well, everybody's a sinner. I'm a sinner. This is not just ticking a box or assenting, nodding their head to a doctrine. Look now and see how they identify and they specify key sins that stand out in their history over that 1500 year period. Go back to verse 16. And here this is um, set in the context of the Lord sustaining them in the wilderness and all that he provided for them. But look at what they say. But they and our fathers acted proudly. Pride. They hardened their hearts. They did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks. There's that phrase a second time. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Pride, stubbornness, disobedience, forgetfulness, um, going their own way. Are those not the sins that I commit? Are those not the sins that we commit? We fall into pride. We dig in our heels and we're stubborn and we will do it our way. 
uh, and we are clear about what God wants us to do in a situation, but no, I'm not doing that, Lord. And there are times when we just openly rebel. And there are times, sadly, and we can almost immerse ourselves again in the world. There's something very specific and deep about their confession. So there's a breadth to it, 1,500 years. There's uh, a depth to it. And look again at verse 26, where they now are in the era where they're being scourged and where they're in their inheritance, they've been not only saved and sustained, but they've been settled. And in that settled state, what did they do? Verse 26, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their backs. Said, we're beyond that. We don't need the law of God. We can live by ourselves. We can do it our way. They killed your prophets. They rejected the messengers of God. Closed their ears to what they were saying. Who testified against them. To turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Go down then to verse 29. In the middle of it. Notice again. They acted proudly. Did not heed your commandments. But sinned against your judgments. Which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Pride, rebellion, refusal to listen to the Lord. So there's a depth to their confession. And I believe there's an urgency to their confession of sin also. And that's where we come to verses 32 to 37. Because they look now at the present situation and go to verse 37. We are in great distress and they're great distress. Why is that? It's because of their sins. It's because of their um, ongoing Rebellion against the Lord. And they say there's an urgency now. Now therefore, verse 32, our God, the great and mighty God, do not let all the trouble, it's the same word as verse 37, distress seems small before you. Verse 36, here we are slaves today. We're in bondage. We're slaves. The land you gave to our fathers and it yields much increase. But who's getting the increase? It's the kings you have set over us. Why have you set them over us? Because of our sins. And so broken and weary or broken and wearied, they yearn for change. They yearn for change. They long to experience the favour of the Lord. They want to live again under the blessing of God. They want to know his smile when they rise up in the morning and his favour when they lie down at night. 
They want to serve the great and mighty and awesome God. And they know from hard experience that sin brings misery. Sin brings misery. Do you not know that? Do I not know that? From hard experience, sin brings misery. The world, when we try to serve it, enslaves and it tyrannizes and it exhausts those who serve it. But what hope? What hope has Israel of better days ahead? Has Israel not burnt her boats? After all, for 1,500 years, they behaved like this. Their whole history. Have they not squandered their privileges? Well, strikingly, In this chapter, and it's true in all of scripture, strikingly in this chapter, each time the people plumb the depths of their sinfulness, they also scale the heights of divine faithfulness. Each time the people plumb the depths of unfaithfulness, they also are brought back to the heights and they scale the heights of divine faithfulness and goodness. Look at verse 17. Go back to that. Verses 16 and 17, the first part of it, about their sins uh, when they were in the wilderness. And after those sins are all named, that list that I read earlier. But you are God, ready to pardon Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Isn't that just incredible? Isn't that just altogether otherworldly? Would we deal with each other in that way? No, we wouldn't. But that is how God deals with his people in Christ and in his grace. Ready to pardon. Gracious. Merciful. Abundant in kindness. Did not forsake them. Or look at verse 19. Yet in your manifold mercies. Notice again, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The Lord would have been right to. He'd been right to have started again. But he didn't. Verse 27, the second part of it. Um, Talking now about when they were settled in the land and their sin and rebellion. At the end of verse 27, uh, it says... um, And according to your abundant mercies, there's that same phrase again. You gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Verse 30. um, 
talking about the long period of uh, the kings and the prophets when they were settled in the land. But what did they do? We saw they acted proudly and all those other sins that we mentioned earlier. But now verse 30, yet for many years, the long suffering of God with sinners, with his people, with his church, you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. Yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them at the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. Where would we be without the nevertheless of this passage? We would be cast off. We would be on our road to hell for eternal judgment for our sin. But God, yes, with a people that he's saved, with a people that he's sustained, with a people that he's settled, he scourges them out of his love and mercy and grace and patience because he will not let his people go. Summed up so crisply in verse 33. You are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully. But we have done wickedly. So we have this um, tension here and this contrast here. The people plumbing the depths of their sinfulness and then being lifted out of their sinfulness to scale the heights and to taste again of God's goodness. Paul put it like this. Where sin did abound, there did grace much more abound. Biblical confession has two sides to it. And if we don't have both, it's not biblical confession. Biblical confession has a true sense of sin. In its utter and absolute sinfulness and unacceptability to God. But it also has an apprehension of the mercy of God. In Christ. We see it. In the tax collector. In the temple. Beating his breast. But going home. Justified. Word produced confession. What do we know of it? Is our experience of it stale? Is it past? Is it present? Did you know it yesterday? 
Did you know it today? Word produced confession of your sin as an individual. Or have we fallen into that great and tragic error of bland general terms? I'm a sinner. Forgive me. But there's nothing specific. There's no width to it. And is there, there should be a width to our confession. A width that recognizes sinful patterns of behavior over the years. The years I've been a Christian. The pride, the disobedience, um, the rebellion, the contempt for God's word. We should confess those things. There should be a depth to our confession. A grappling with specific sins. My besetting sin. My habitual sin. My particular sins. There should be a depth that confesses our breaches of the commandments. That's why the commandments are there. We should use them as a mirror to look at our lives and to see our sins. In the same way as this morning before you came out, you looked in the mirror to see that there was no dirty marks in your face and your hair was combed and everything else. Is there a depth to our confession that focuses in on the works of the flesh as Paul mentions them in Galatians chapter 6? Or as Jesus mentions them in Mark chapter 7 verse 21, 22, out of the heart comes. <coughs> Is there a confession that acknowledges the absence of the fruit of the Spirit? Here I am a Christian, 10, 20, 30, 40 years but there's an absence of love or an absence of self-control, an absence of kindness. And what of confession of sin as a church? What of confession of sin as a congregation? We have been together for 14 years in God's goodness. We've known him sustaining him, sustaining us. We now know how the Lord has settled us. And we give thanks that he saved us and sustained us through those 14 years. And that he's now settled us in this place. But is there a scourging that the Lord needs to do? In my life? In your life? In our lives? Do we confess the things that have grieved the Lord? We cannot say that there's never been pride or disobedience or rebellion. If we do, we're not being honest and we're being fools. There have been things that have hindered the Lord's blessing. Has there been selfishness, lack of sensitivity to others, Neglect of the means of grace. Failure to give to the Lord's work. Failure to forgive the sins of another. 
What about our lack of passion for his glory? Our lack of worship of him in his being and in his works? What about our lack of love for one another? What about our lack of compassion for the unsaved? That we can sit and gather every week knowing that we are going to heaven, knowing that people are going to hell and we're too busy? Or for some other reason, we're not filled with sorrow for those around us. Word produced confession. But let's close with this note. Word produced confession. It's not morbid. It is not morbid. It's not destructive. It's not pointless or hopeless. That's what the psychologists would try to tell us this morning. That, oh, your problem is you've got too much sense of sin and it makes you morbid and introspective and all those other things and warps your personality. No, here's the truth. As surely as word-produced confession focuses our attention on our sin, it also directs our gaze upward to Christ. To Christ. Who died for our sins. Who rose again for our justification. That God would say of you, he, she is righteous in my sight. They are my child by grace. It focuses us on Christ. That his grace, that God's grace might abound in us through him. And that his grace might abound among us. And from us to a hopeless world. It's a saving grace. Word produced confession gives us a true sense of sin. And a true apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. So that as Nehemiah says then in Nehemiah chapter 8. Do not mourn nor weep. Verse 9 of chapter 8. He says that again and again. Do not sorrow. Yes, there is to be a time of sorrow. But then he says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of Christ's forgiveness. That is your strength, he says. Do we need rebuilding? Does your life need rebuilding? Well, here's how it'll happen. Through word-based confession. That brings you to see your sinfulness, your utter sinfulness before God, a holy God. But then also to see that there is mercy for those who will lay hold of Christ. Are you doing that? And if you're not, 
Will you do that? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we find words of the psalmist coming to our minds. Search us, O God, and know us, and lead us in the way that is everlasting. Against you, you only have I sinned and we sinned, and in your sight done this evil. We bless you, Almighty God, for your word, that by your Holy Spirit it brings us a conviction of our sin and brings us to confess it. And then that same word lifts our eyes up to Calvary, to one who was pierced for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquities, upon whom the chastisement of our peace was laid. Thank you for Jesus, the one who is altogether lovely in your sight. Help us to receive him and to rest upon him and to abide in him. Lord, deliver us from our own individual sins. And deliver us from our congregational sins, we do pray you. And Lord, preserve us from thinking that we could not do what Israel did or have not done what Israel did, for we are no different from them. No sin, no temptation has seized us except that which is common to man. Thank you that in Christ we have the way of escape to all who look to him. Thank you that one day all who believe in him will be like him. Amen.